0: Hello and welcome to The Stack, a special show today. I spoke to one of my favorite photographers, the wonderful Stephen Klein. The subversive and powerful work of Klein is on display in his first monograph. Also on the show are some highlights from our Chiefs Conference in Dallas. Enjoy the show. Housing in London, this is The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis and I am Fernando Gustavo Pacheco. We start the show on a very good note. I've been following American photographer Stephen Klein's work for years. I'll never forget buying his incredible photo shoots with Madonna for W Magazine when I was a kid in Brazil. Pure art. His celebrated work is on display on his first monograph, published by Phaidon, featuring some of his best photography. It's a must-have. Stephen stopped by at Midori House. First of all, Stephen, such a pleasure talking to you. I am a big fan. I've been following your work for years. And before we talk about the book, I mean, what I like about your work, it's so cinematic. It gives you the sense of fantasy, which I have to be honest, when I read magazines, I mean, not all of them, I'm missing a little bit of that. So this book's almost like a tribute to all those amazing imagery that you've done as well. Is, is that what you want to portray in your work, uh, the sense of fantasy?
1: Yeah, I think my intention always is to provoke people to look at a picture and, and ask questions about the pictures and ask questions about themselves and to make them think about something and to provoke ideas in different ways. I think just to show a show address dress on a page is kind of like you could see that online today when you watch a fashion show. So part of the reason why I did the book is I think a lot of the magazines today aren't doing journalistic and idea stories that have narratives attached to them or bigger ideas. So I thought it was a good time to put the collection of work together in one book
0: absolutely and it's a beautiful i mean people have to say it's a heavy book as well there's
1: plenty of pages in here i think it's more the papers a good quality paper so it's heavy but it's not like a gigantic book so i think it's heavy but reasonable to carry and coated as also even some of the pictures you can feel it yeah what i wanted to do is i like the idea especially the one on the cover to feel more like photographs and i actually used a lot of my original print so it's not it's like through the years of working i worked with film and then went to digital and a lot of images are produced from film stills the one on the cover actually is from a film camera a digital film camera for a project i did called fetish heels for the brooklyn museum so that's an actual still so there's many different formats and on the paper it's actually varnished, so it looks like as close to a real photograph as possible
0: I love that. But, Stephen, compared, you know, to photo shoots these days, I mean, in the past, there was much higher budgets as well, right? I mean, how how do you think it changed? Why this kind of, the sense of exuberance a little bit have been lost in a way?
1: Partially, I think, because of social media and the internet. I think because so many fashion brands are advertising online that magazines no longer have the amount of money that's generated from advertising, so therefore the budgets have been cut A lot of staff as well from magazines have been cut. Most of the people that I've worked with in this book have also probably been laid off or somehow not working for the magazines anymore. So I think that has an effect on the budgets. I mean, budgets were always difficult to manage because a lot of my shoots are big productions, but I think even now it's even more difficult than before with photographers' fees, with... production expenses and, and overall ideas people will still want they're asking me to do the same pictures I did before but for you know 90% less in production value and that can be that can it's be difficult yeah
0: it is and I have something very curious you have this relationship with stars and you know let's talk about Madonna because that's the I mean one of the first kind of works that that you've done that I you know I felt fascinated still inspires me to this day. I can see a picture and say that's a Steven Klein picture but when you're working with someone like Madonna you know she's she knows what she's doing she she's you know she knows exactly her, her imagery how she wanted to be how do you put actually your kind of stamp on someone like Madonna for
1: example because um, it feels
0: very Steven Klein but also Madonna
1: you know I think well the first time we worked together we collaborated but it was basically she walked into my studio we had a lot of exchanges and communication about the idea of her doing ecstatic process but i think after our first shoot it was very successful we she gained a lot of trust from me and i think that we became good collaborators because without the trust and without the love and anything you do i think that it's not possible so the thing is is that it's interesting because people, when they've walked into my studio and that aren't so connected with her or her image, they'll see a picture of her and not even know it's her. And to me, that's successful because the thing is, I do try to take the celebrity out of celebrities. And I think mm-hmm. even in the book, when I edited the book, there were several pictures, one in particular from Rio, actually, mm-hmm. that was on the cover of W that was actually showing her face full you know, a full face picture facing the camera and I showed her the pictures for the book and a lot of the pictures from the book are from her back. And she actually took that picture out and she said it was too commercial. So I think she has a, she's a great admirer of great photography and fine art photography and she appreciates good work. And I think that in that way she's a great collaborator with me because we both have a love for photography and filmmaking.
0: And you mentioned the Rio shoot. For me, that's very iconic because she was playing a character there as well. You know, this kind of, this lady who goes in Rio, it's quite, it feels very decadent, you know. It doesn't necessarily need to be uh, Madonna in a way, but, you know, she was playing, she was yeah, being an actress was, there,
1: right? Yeah, it was based on a movie with Jean Moreau. It was based on a, a role in a film, a French movie that we based that character on in Rio.
0: Stephen, at the beginning of your career, was there a magazine that you started doing your work? How how did you kind of get into the scene? In the um,
1: I I actually had my first opportunity to work for Dior Cosmetics because a campaign had been uh, rejected and I was in Paris and I got an opportunity to shoot the campaign for Dior Cosmetics and that's how I began. After that, I started working for Italian Vogue with Franco Sassani and... From there, I went to American Vogue and and W, and and that's kind of how it rolled out for me. Was it hard at the beginning? Because, I mean, I
0: look at your pictures, some of them, some might say a little bit controversial. I mean, because sometimes some of those
1: magazines, they play very safe. But did you push a little bit some of those boundaries? Well, I think at the beginning, I think you have to establish yourself. It's like being a writer. I think that at the beginning like when anybody begins i think you service the magazines and i think you're just trying to get in it's very difficult to get in at the beginning with any magazine especially like italian vogue i think the most difficult one was here in england was the face was the most difficult because i think it was kind of like if you were american working for the face was not really a cool thing to have an american at the face so that was probably one of the most difficult shoots to be accepted and and allowed to do what I do at at that magazine. I think, you know, as time goes on, for instance with Franca, that the trust through doing pictures over and over and working over several years, that one allows you to start experimenting more and then they start to see what your strengths are and they start to encourage you to, to be, to have more of your own voice. I think it's not easy at the beginning for anybody, I think everybody struggles with everything that they do at the beginning to actually find out who they are as well as an artist.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Well, let's talk. I mean, if you you look at the book, it's interesting because you can find some themes or some imagery that you enjoy. For example, one that strikes me is horses. I mean, they're incredibly influential. There are many images there. Uh, And they they are very extremely
1: elegant animals as well. Tell us your connection as well with horses. Well, I have a lot of horses and I've been riding most of my life and I have jumpers and I find them... Anatomically beautiful and Mm. I love the discipline of riding and and for me it's a little bit like perfection that exists in work and photography and also I would probably say in beauty and art and to me they're all connected. The the idea of it's it's a discipline but it's also there's a freedom in it and I like the combination. I've used horses as a, a way of like doing multiple studies in my book. I've included a couple in this book. And I like all the different nuances between, like, one neck to another neck. Mm. You could compare it to models in a way. They're my other type of models that I love to work with.
0: Yeah, I, I love the one, uh, sorry for giving me the picture, I think there's a horse swimming and there's a model there. So yes. that's a brilliant, a brilliant image, actually. I want to put a print in my house uh. of that image, actually. What about... Do you have Rottweilers as well? Because
2: that's... No, the, I have Great Danes. Uh, I have Great, great Danes as well. Great Danes and horses. You know, they're, yes. st-
0: they're, they're stunning. Thank you. We spoke about your relationship with Madonna, but another person that I feel is Tom Ford. There was this iconic shoot, The Valley of the Dolls. Yes. I mean, that was an amazing shoot. How was your relationship with Tom Ford and how did you collaborate creatively together?
1: Well, on that particular project, I think he was coming out with a fragrance at that point And... So W wanted to do a feature about him. And the thing is, uh, Tom and I spoke about, at that time, I don't know how many years ago, but it must have been at least 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. but it was like the beginning of like the Botox and fillers and people changing their bodies. So the thing is that I used these prosthetic dolls with Tom because I felt models had too much personality. So I wanted to have these characters that were devoid of personality. And then I used these triplets, three boys in it, as well because it was the idea of, like, cloning. So it was the idea of people, you know, becoming more and more artificial-looking, changing their bodies, people changing their butts, their, you know, their, their faces. And, and it, it's funny because when I look at them now, they seem to reflect more of the times now than they did then. Tom has a great sense of humor, and he brought a lot to it. It was a really interesting shoot. Since then, Tom and I collaborated on so many projects for his fragrances and fashion campaigns. He has a great kind of irony and wit to his approach to his work. Oh, and that, that shoot, again, was
0: one of my all-time favorites as well.
1: Was it for Italian Vogue? Forgive me if I... No,
0: we actually did it for W Magazine. For w, okay. w Magazine. Yeah, fantastic. We mentioned, we spoke about the the budget and how it's different for photographers these days, but another aspect, I would like to hear your opinion, Uh, you know, I might be wrong, do you feel that there's less freedom as well from some of those big publications? Because sometimes today you have to be very careful as well, which boundaries you should push. As a photographer, do you feel that pressure or or does it exist?
1: Yeah, I can give you many examples. I think with all the the bigger magazines now which I don't actually work for that often because the thing is they're they're less interested in pushing boundaries. Even during COVID I did a series of pictures with my iPhone for YSL and I thought a younger magazine would be more intrigued by Arresting images, even though I knew what I was, they they knew what I was doing. But the thing is, is that they rejected them as well. So I think, you know, you have to find the right magazines. I find that there are a lot of new, young magazines that will allow you to do it. Unfortunately, there are no budgets. That's why I've been starting to shoot with my iPhone and try to keep my production down because I think. And is know, that okay for you? I love it. IPhone? Actually, it, it creates a lot of freedom because it's like from going from like teams of like forty people to work with two people. During quarantine, it was kind of great, So it taught me a new way of working Wow, oh, that's brilliant.
0: One quote, I mean you write in the book, "I love this. "This book I offer you is the book of desire: My dream of leaving my mark on you in you." That's beautiful, right? I mean And that's Thank perhaps you. what the book is is a, is a work of desire, right? And
1: Yeah. I think a lot of pictures people ask, I think one of the misconceptions about me or my work is I think people think your work is you which it's not, and I think mm. that people, I try to, I think my images create, you know, desires or fear, and I think people are always interested in the desires or fear what they fear they're attracted to, so I think that, if anything, they're speaking in those terms.
0: That's interesting, so you're saying, you know, because your image is, you know, striking, you know, uh, fetishistic at times, that doesn't mean that, that that's who you are. That means perhaps that's what you're interested That in. That's what makes a picture beautiful as well.
1: Oh, I'm interested in the people that are into the, into those things. I think that fetishes and things like that, I think are interesting because people... I think I'm interested in anything that people are obsessed with.
0: And I love how can you can change. I mean, of course... With Madonna, not really, because I feel that you you worked you guys worked very close together. But even with someone like Brad Pitt, I mean, I think at the time when the pictures around the Fight Club era came up, that was something quite different for him at the time, right? That kind of even today, with people still showing those images, how was it actually working with with Brad?
1: Well, we'd worked several times before Fight Club, and that oh, really? was an interesting okay. shoot because. Yeah, because while he was filming the movie, he called me up and he said that he loved the costumes and he wanted to do pictures with the costumes. So I called W, I called Dennis Friedman a W. and I said, well, would you be interested in Brad Pitt? But the only stipulation is that we'd have to use all the costumes from Fight Club. And I think it was the first time that a magazine actually, you know, dedicated like 44 pages without any credits, including the cover, using a costume from a movie. And it was very successful. So I think for me, it was also, I read the book for Fight Club and I created my own Fight Club without seeing the movie. And that was the first time I departed from doing more, I would say for me, conventional fashion images and entering the world of cinema and working with people that work in cinema as well. Lighting people, production designers, etc.,
0: because you're also a video clip director as well, right? Yes. I mean, so you still like to work with video imagery, and not not just photography in a way.
1: Oh, I love filmmaking. Yeah. You did Alejandro by Lady Gaga. Yes, Cat, right? I did. Gosh, I did that, that song. That video. Yes.
0: That video is brilliant. Yeah. Actually,
1: that was a really good experience.
0: Yeah, they they mentioned my name, Fernando, There, that's why. Oh, Fernando, yeah. Fernando, yes, I Alejandro, Roberto. I know. Uh, and, and today, which publications actually do you enjoy working with? You mentioned some newer publications.
1: It, it depends. Oh. I mean, for me, I think... I mean, I still, like, I've been working a lot for The Face again since I relaunched it, ID and British Vogue. I think it depends. For me, it's important, the editor that I work with and the idea. So it's not so important. I don't think one magazine has, like, a standard, like it did in the past, like French Vogue with Karine Martfield or mm. Franco Sassani. I think, for me, it's, like, the person I'm actually working with, the editor, and the idea of the story that's important, and then I'll do it, if it interests me.
0: This book here, I think it lends itself to a wonderful exhibition as well. I can totally see, like those images in a big print. I mean, what next? I mean, I know you're doing a book tour. You're going to, you know, a couple of cities. You're talking about the book. And, and that's not just a retrospective because you're still very much working with new projects all the time.
1: Yeah, this book is like a selected works. It's not a retrospective book. Mm. But the thing is, is that these images will eventually be in an exhibition that will tour the world.
0: I cannot wait. And you should go perhaps to Rio and Sao Paulo as well. To yes, show it.
1: I've had exhibitions in Sao Paulo. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Uh, listen, Stephen, uh, what a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank
1: you for having me. No, my pleasure. Okay. Thank you very much,
0: Stephen. And Stephen Klein is out now, published by Fiden. And now a few highlights from Monaco's Chiefs Conference that took place in Dallas earlier this week. I've selected two guests my interest our listeners here on the stack. The first one is Catrice Hardy, executive editor of the Dallas Morning News. She's an industry veteran who's recently taken the reins of this historic newspaper. She tells Monaco's Chris Lord why local journalism matters, and especially when a city is on the up.
2: Dallas is the fourth largest metro in the country, every seven or so years we get a million new people so if you think about that that's a lot of people who are coming from all over the world we have something like fortune 500 companies in our region and so our role really is to help bridge the gap between newcomers oldcomers but more importantly to make sure we're accentuating in our coverage what's most important in Dallas and also what our challenges are because to keep up with that pace of growth and keep up with just the businesses who are constantly looking to relocate here, the tax base that we have, the tax credits and all those incentives that elected officials are trying to put in force so that we continue to be a prosperous, growing state is really important. And so we see our role as vitally important to the future and sustainability of our region.
3: It's interesting because just in the last year, in 2021, and it's a sign of how many people have moved in, you've had a big bump in subscriptions, I think 22% we were talking about before the break. Really interesting that's going on there. And I I should just read you one thing. Above the door, the paper is is based not far from here, and above the door is a quote from one of the very early publishers, J.B. Dealey, which says, it talks about the rights of the people to get from the newspaper both sides of every important question. And I wonder... When you've got a lot of people moving in, probably a multiplicity of thoughts coming from different parts of the country, different mm-hmm. ways of life, different ways of politics as well. As a leader of a newsroom, what do you say to your reporters <laughs> and what do you say to your, you know, your editorial team as well to kind of bring that broad church in to make sure that everybody can hear some sense, even if they may not agree, but mm-hmm. some sense that they appreciate where the paper's coming from?
2: Absolutely. And so I, I want to stress that the newsroom... Our charge is to really cover the issues, to be balanced in our approach, to make sure that even if we say someone's an expert, they really are. So we tell you more about them when we use that word. And it's really to provide the information to help you make decisions, to help our readers make decisions about what we're covering. Our editorial department, on the other hand, does a deep analysis and tells you this is how we think you should feel about this issue. And so we keep those two things separate. I do not manage the editorial department for that reason, right? I'm I'm actually leading 180 people who are trying to help You decide those things for yourself, and so it would be a conflict of interest. So that's one way that we really protect our role and the ethical. You know, a lot of doctors have an oath; we have an ethical oath, and frankly, we terminate people if they don't follow those rules and regulations that we've laid out. And so we think it's really, really important. I mean, we think about the word choices we use. Last night you had to be very careful with even the winners. You know, how do we describe who they are and what they stand for? Are we also giving both sides of the issue? I will also say that I think Most of us are far more nuanced than one way or the other way, right? Most of what we deal with in life is not black and white, which actually is why things are often so complicated. And so I talk to our staff a lot about many things are shades of gray. And so let's make sure we're quoting people. We're not assuming that just because maybe you label yourself as conservative or liberal, you must feel that way about that issue. Everybody is, when we're far more thoughtful, I think, and more intelligent than that. And so we make sure, we try to really make sure our coverage reflects that.
3: I wonder, Catrice, before coming to the, to the Morning News, you worked in various other local papers, mm-hmm. and Indianapolis Star is one of them, and again, more Pulitzers and newsrooms that you've led that have had ex- exceptional success. I just want to tell you, there's people here coming from all over the world, tell us a bit about the state of local news Absolutely. in America right now, and why it's important that that survives more than ever, if you like.
2: Absolutely. And so, I mean, I'm sure you guys read the headlines from all over the country and the world, basically, right? How people feel about things. I mean, you take something like COVID and we just had so many different varying levels of, of thoughts about COVID. Some of us were like, oh, that's, it doesn't exist. It's made up. <laughs> some of us thought this is really serious. Mm-hmm. I need to take some extreme precautions and read all I can to determine if I want my child to go to school or not, if I want to ever go back to the office again. And so there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. And so we think now more than ever, it's really, really important that local journalism is sees itself and follows the rules and regulations we set out for ourselves so that we're providing that nuanced Fact-based information, again, for you to make those decisions for yourself. I'll tell you that I think um, our challenge, though, is a lot of folks in the media don't trust, uh, in the country don't trust us. So most of our readership is questioning, "Well, who is the media?" And you know, I don't really think that you are someone who can give me a fair and balanced approach to the information that I'm seeking. And I think part of the reason is because we've done a really horrible job from the beginning of our existence of actually giving the value proposition of why what we do is so special that we're trained at this, that we go to school for this, that we're trained to be critical thinkers who don't just take what someone says, but we're skeptical about it. We're digging more and not just saying, oh, that's the fact you gave me, it must be true. Well, actually, is it? And so I think our challenge, you know, people have stopped subscribing in some cases. We have headlines every day. I had a headline that I read to my staff the other day about three newspapers in Alabama deciding the first of the year to no longer actually print print publication right we had a headline last week about another company they're going to have another round of layoffs and they've had them you know earlier this year so it's really really important for us to explain what we do and why we do it and to peel back the curtain on who we are and how we go about the work we do.
0: Thank you very much Catrice. And the other conversation is with Rebecca wesson Darwin. The publisher, whose award-winning magazine, Garden & Gun, offers a fresh view on the South. We hear why not all meaningful conversations in the U.S. start in coastal cities, and how the southern states are spearheading another view of living well. She spoke to Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, and with ConFacts, Sophie Grove.
4: I was privileged to work with incredible companies in New York and learn the best about magazine publishing. And through kind of a fluke in my life, my husband decided to become a Presbyterian minister, and we moved back to my home state, South Carolina, in Charleston. And at first, I had a lot of friends who would say, oh, Rebecca, you know, you were publisher of The New Yorker we need to start a great magazine of the South, like the New Yorker. And I thought, these people are not going to read anything like the New Yorker. (laughs) So instead, I kind of put that in the back of my head. And I just did keep feeling like there is a very smart, sophisticated group of people that live in the South, and there was not a magazine that was addressing that. I always wanted to do a magazine that both men and women liked equally, and We hear stories about people fighting over the magazine when it comes, you know, who gets to read it first. And I say, just get two subscriptions. But anyway, you know, I wanted to show that there were good things going on in the South. There was really at that time, Charleston was starting to grow much like Dallas has and Southern food, Southern music, all of these things were becoming, you know, I could see something on the rise. And so I decided to throw my hat in the ring, write a business plan, launch at that crazy time, and here we are
5: well, and part of the reason why here we are because one of the interesting conversations that I had uh, with Sean Todd is he said, you know whenever he goes to someone 's house in Houston or he's in Austin or he might be up in Virginia, he said he knows it's a measure of a really good family if there's a copy of Garden and Gun and monocle on their on their coffee table but and that, that was sort of you know part of the start and discussion. We were chatting last night, I was in Florida last week, and I was at a Publix grocery store, so at checkout, as we know, all of the magazines are sort of lined up alongside everything else that's there. You were very, very well displayed, but it, it sort of made me ask the question, where did the South start for you, and how far does the South go today? I mean, over 15 years, because when you were in sort of Miami, I was thinking, is this your heartland or not?
4: Well, when we started, the South was kind of defined by the economics of what we could afford to do and how much we could distribute the magazine. But it was typically, you know, kind of south of the Mason-Dixon line. And in putting, you know, cities that I thought I'd really like to focus and build circulation in, Miami wasn't on that list. But a place like Pensacola or maybe Tallahassee would have been on that list that kind of meshed with the lifestyle. Well, it turned out that A lot of other people wanted it than just where we were distributing the magazine, so we ended up, Maryland is considered part of our footprint, Texas originally, I couldn't afford to get on all the newsstands in Texas, so we didn't include Texas, and you're a vocal group of people, I heard about it, and Texas is a major piece of what we do now and a very large part of our circulation. And the last was Oklahoma, the governor of Oklahoma wrote to me and he said, We want to be in the magazine, so every once in a while you'll see something. But the footprint of what we write about and what we cover, and it extends to, you know, Europe and other places, but the footprint is just kind of the subject matter. The readership is really all over the place. Forty-five percent of our circulation is outside of the southeast. So I always say we're a magazine about the south. We're a national magazine about the south, not a southern magazine. And in terms of that content, it strikes me from reading the magazine, which is it's a celebration of the kind of idiosyncratic character. There's a lot of eccentricity. The interiors are really they have a lot of emotion. That it's not it's not a perfectionist. The magazine is, it has a lot of humanity in its style, but it also just in its approach. But can you describe a little bit about that and how your editors go about sort of evoking the southern character? Well, from the beginning, we weren't about stuff. When we did the first issue, it literally just kind of came together, and we sent it to press. And as I look back on it, what we are about is storytelling. So everything, those homes aren't just presented from here's a room, these are beautiful pieces of furniture in it. It's about the people that live there and how they inhabit that space. We're also about the high and the low. I mean, you know, we, we can get down at the grubbiest bar, and we can also have a great time at a Glorious hotels. So, I think that's the way people really live their lives. They may have a fancy European car in their driveway, but they probably got a Ford truck too. So, that's our reader, and we'll never run out of stories. I mean, you know, Southerners love to tell their story. They like to talk a lot. They're all related to each other. So, and they love their (laughs) dogs. If I had a dollar for everybody who wanted their dog to be on the cover, I would be a very wealthy person. But I think people see themselves in the pages of the magazine. And that's what really brings them in, engages them, and, you know, it, it reflects their lifestyle.
0: Thank you very much, Rebecca. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Aden Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember... We're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And before we go, we have a song for you. And you know who directed the video for that song? Stephen Klein. The song is Alejandro by Lady Gaga. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.